I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a lecture given at the Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult Conference held in London, May of 2016. Presenting is Robert Ansel, discussing the androgyny of Austin Osman Spare. As is the case with most episodes of Rendering Unconscious, this episode is also available at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Film at YouTube, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast at YouTube. As this is a presentation from a conference, Robert Ansel will be speaking about different works of art so it might behoove you to watch this episode at YouTube so you can follow along and see the works of art he's describing. Collected papers from this conference can be found as the Fenris Wolf Volume 9. The paperback edition is sold out but the hardbound special edition that comes with a limited edition print that is signed by the artist of the cover art by Val Denham is available. I think there are about four left that we found at Trapart headquarters. So if you're interested, head over to www.trapart.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T.net, and search for The Fenris Wolf Volume 9. A link to it is included in the text accompanying this episode. We also still have a couple of copies of the hardbound book of Rendering Unconscious, the book. That's Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, which came out in 2019. Those are on sale for currently for only $12.00. So check that out at trapart.net. The other way you can support the podcast is by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Again, links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. As well, we have a special website for the conferences that address the intersections of psychoanalysis, the arts, and the occult. That's psychartcult. Psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T.org. There, you can read all about the Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference series, the different guests we've had presenting, and topics. Master's for Conservation of Works of Art on Paper in London. 
As an artist, his work attempts to expand the periphery of consciousness. He cites his fundamental influences as sequential art, the Italian Renaissance, and surrealism. In the field of art conservation, Derek has always sought to work with visionary art or objects with sacred qualities. He has worked as a conservator or archivist at St. Paul's Cathedral, John Lackham's Blacktime House, the 9-11 Memorial, and the Nicholas Rourke Museum. He's currently completing work for a solo exhibition, which he had right before this, and then he brought it here. So here's this wall, here are these nine pieces called the Bastard Icons that are amazing. I specifically wanted the Angel of Discontent because my analytic group is called Dr. Umbahagen, which is discontent. So I told him he had to bring the Angel of Discontent to my show, of course. me about this is that uh, why is it that we as a, as a community seem to have this sort of existential crisis about this uh, relationship with um, wider culture? I mean there are plenty of minority groups who don't seem to wring their hands over this um, and they seem to exist quite happily but for some reason we uh, take it quite personally. Um, for me, I think you know, considering this <clears throat> It seems to stem for me around uh, ideas of uh, authenticity and validation and also intimacy. Because uh, the reason why we're here, I think, is that we have questions that we need answered. And these are very personal questions. Sometimes these are questions which have been born of a personal experience. Sometimes it's a crisis in life that prompts us to challenge the way we're thinking about the world. I'd like to share with you the reason why I'm here. My very first memory, I was probably two years old, and I can remember lying in my cot, and I suddenly became aware that if I made a particular noise in my head, with a strange sort of metal, metal jangling sound, that this strange turtle-like man would appear, and he would wander down the corridor of the house, and he would reach into the cot, and he would reach into my stomach, and I would begin a dialogue with him, and he would ask me what animal I'd like to be and I could choose an animal. And at that point, then, I had this extraordinary sort of, almost an erotic sort of sensation that would sweep over me. 
And this is not the kind of thing you share with anyone, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sharing it with you because you're friends. <laughs> but actually, 45 years later, I shared this with my parents. Uh, we were talking about our first memories, and I said, oh, okay, hold on to your hands. <laughs> and then my mother looked at me and she said, well, that answers a question. We always wondered who the hell you were talking to. We could hear you on the baby con. <laughs> so, um, you know, this, this, uh, this notion of these personal experiences, you know, the, the things that we have uh, within us that we have difficulty sharing with the wider world because of the way we're judged, perhaps. It's difficult, perhaps, to be um, entirely ourselves. And I think that, you know, when we're judged, it's like uh, being rejected by a lover or by an angry parent. You know, we have this kind of tension that's set up, and we want to resolve that tension. And there are many different ways of resolving that tension. I think the first instinct is to say, you're wrong. I'm going to change you. I want you to behave differently towards me. You know, looking at the world around us, we want to modify it and make it more palatable for us and our experiences. And then maybe we realize that's actually quite a bit of work. And maybe we <laughs> might approach it differently and maybe change ourselves and work on ourselves and make us, you know, more compatible with the world. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. <clears throat> what I'm going to talk to you about today is the way an artist 100 years ago approached this problem. This artist, Austin Osmond Spare. This is a picture of him in his Winrose studio taken in the early 1950s by Bert Hardy. Uh, it's chaotic, as you can see. Uh, he was living in extremely reduced circumstances. He'd had a life of great hardship. He, uh, he came here living with a friend of his from a very early days called Ada Payne. Uh, he was bombed in the war, lost his studio, lost everything. He ended up living in a basement, creating works of art and passed all mostly on paper. Uh, this is quite a well-known image of Spare, actually. And this is the Spare of Kenneth Grant. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Kenneth Grant uh, was fresh from meeting Crowley, was an occultist, encountered Spare, and two men immediately bonded had a great uh, share of art, and kind of thought surrealism, which I wasn't so happy about, but in any case, a great love of art, uh, and also a great sort of similarity of attitude to the world. Um, Spare respected Grant, and on Spare's death, Grant inherited um, all of Spare's manuscripts and papers, um, as is amanuensis. Uh, he had the authority that goes with that. And 20 years later, Grant wrote an account of Spare, Images and Articles of Austin's from Spare, and faced with the task of trying to explain how this man, who produced a body of work, probably two and a half, three thousand images through the course of his life, made absolutely no money whatsoever. Um, how do you sort of present that in a way which makes it work, which makes it, you know, sexy, if you like? Well, Grant um, frames Spare as a romantic anti-hero. You know, this was the guy who, uh, lived in South London, you know, he was sort of fucking barmaids and kind of doing a school of art, he was uh, betting on the horses, and he lived in a studio above Woolworths on Woolworth Road. <laughs> this extraordinary combination. Now, that reading of Spare has been enormously influential because it's mythic and it's heroic. I don't intend to, it's not my intent at all, to dismiss that. Instead, rather, I'd like to add another layer to that. I want to talk about a different man. This man. This is spare 50 years earlier, age 17. 
His whole life is before him. In those days, he was living in Kennington with his parents. He had a small studio in the attic and used a beautiful wife producing extraordinary works. But a very early work he produced was accepted and hung in the Royal Academy Summer Show in 1904. And almost overnight, Spare became a national celebrity, the youngest ever exhibitor at the Royal Academy. Not quite true, but that's what they were saying at the time. Suddenly, there were journalists camped at his door. He was besieged. As a very shy young boy, this was a, an overwhelming experience. <coughs> he, uh, he didn't really know how to cope with it. He certainly didn't want to be interviewed. And the press, in the way that they do when they're faced with a vacuum of information, started to make things up. Spare was going to be the greatest portraitist of his age. He was going to be president of the Academy, etc., etc., etc. Spare wasn't interested in any of that. He was interested in this. <laughs> this is a drawing from 1903. It's a strange biomorphic mass. What is it? It's part, partly dead, partly alive. It's a strange creature of sorts. Nothing certainly recognisable. <coughs> Fortunately for us, Spare has titled it, though you can't quite see in the top. Kia sat. And what is that? Well, Kia was a term that Spare later used to define the absolute. I suppose um, the easiest way of considering it is in the lens of Taoism. Kia uh, is Tao, if you like. It's uh, certainly in its maternal, creative aspect. And Spare saw this expressed through living things, through the cycle of birth and death, etc., etc. This is the earliest expression of it. It certainly wasn't what the journalists wanted to see. You know, they wanted him to be conventional. And he felt like he had to, if you like, issue some kind of manifesto. And he did. This book. <laughs> Earth and Inferno. Now, as you can imagine from the title, this draws quite heavily from Dante's Inferno. But for Spare, he sort of inverted it, if you like, because for him, the world he was living in was absolute hell. Why was it hell? Because it did not allow him to be the person he wanted to be. Here's a little portrait of himself in the book. And behind him there's a, a woman. Gosh, she's quite nervous, I hope I can read it. He says, strange images of myself did I create as I gazed into the seeming pit of others, losing myself in thoughtfulness of my unreal self as others saw me. Now, he's wearing here, I don't know if you can see, do you remember the little skull on that uh, biomorphic creature? You can see he's got a little skull and his, what I call the Kia pajamas. <laughs> um, but note what, the way he's standing in front of this woman who has her back to us, it's very important. Here's another very important image. A creed of despair. My ambition is dead. I'm exempt from my own creative pleasures, in barrenness of this world that remains. Yet in despair we begin to see the true light. Amen. Now I think this line is very, very important. Because it introduces the word, Amen. And he says, yet in despair we see the true light. And the illustration opposite called the despair. Now, what we have here is a self-portrait of despair. He's wearing an overcoat, he's turning profile to us, and then next to him it looks to be another self-portrait, but as a woman. Bear in mind, this is a 17-year-old boy in 1905 who is depicting himself as a woman in a published work. 
Let's go back to that line. Yet in despair we begin to see true light. Amen. Well, Amen, of course, was an Egyptian god. It's the hidden god. And he was the maker of things. And Sparrow is certainly very familiar with Egyptology, uh, with Budgie's works, certainly. And in the synopsis for Earth Inferno, which he handily gives us, we see this great sort of cycle. And in the centre is the Kia, and that's become now suddenly the head of a vulture. How it's evolved, it's become the head of a vulture. And of course, the consort of Amen, the Egyptian pantheon, was Mut, who was seen sometimes as a vulture, as a mother, if you like. But what I want to draw your attention to here are these strange single-cell creatures, these amoeba, because they are, I think, going to be quite important. <clears throat> so the same year, 1905, Spare begins to develop this idea. This is a manuscript called The Focus of Life, the Papyrus of Amen AOS. Now you can see here, um, this strange uh, vulture-like creature again, which is rising out. We have this uh, sorcerer who has it tethered. Uh, some charts, I think. But, um, and this manuscript is full of the most extraordinary drawings of living things bursting forth. All kinds of creatures, strange hybrids. Sometimes you can see the line is actually so frenzied, he's not drawing anything specific at all. It's simply the exuberance of expression of life, if you like. <clears throat> Now at the end, there is a self-portrait, and we can see this halo around him, and above it it says the ascension of Amen AOS. But what's interesting here is we can see the Kia bird again, the vulture there rising up, and we can see him discarding this mask of conventionality. Now a couple of years later, he produced the Book of Satyrs. The Book of Satyrs is a series of Hogarthian critiques of modern society is quite political. But there's one image in particular I wanted to just show you. This one. This is the artist, a more mature artist, if you like. And you can see him standing and staring intently at us. And behind him is this vast, very masculinized woman. And it's called the General Allegory. And beside them both are masks hanging down. Obviously, as a, an old individual, he has to integrate more society, he must have learned many different personas, many different ways of integrating. Now this was published in 1907, and it was in 1907 that Spare had a show at the Bruton Gallery. And at the Bruton Gallery, he met someone called Alistair Crowley. Now Crowley was quite taken by Spare, he was a young, good-looking man with a huge talent. Crowley uh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he said, you know, you should join my new order, the Argenti Masculine, it's going to be great. So Spare signed up to that. He signed up with this magical name, Jehovah. Now, I believe this to be a portmanteau of Jehovah and Arm. Why? Because Blavatsky, with whom Spare was undoubtedly familiar, says the name Jehovah expresses a he and a she, and Arm is the original of Ammon. <coughs> so this is a hidden he and she, if you like. Now, uh, Spare didn't do too well in the Argentium Astrum. Uh, he never passed beyond the great probationer. Crowley was to later write in his probation form, an artist can't understand an organisation or would have passed. <laughs> but, I believe the collaboration did have fruit. This book, The Book of Pleasure. Spare's 
relationship with Crowley was quite complicated because Crowley was very rigorous in the way he approached things. There was a sort of certain order. And Spare felt, I think, that he needed to express himself in a different way from the show he could do it. And the Book of Pleasure uh, is the result of that. The Book of Pleasure is an extension of Spare's earlier ideas articulated in a new way and broadened and developed. Uh, but one of the things which is distinctive about it is a series of extraordinary androgynous drawings. This one's called Emanations of the Ego. The instance of obsession. The self's vision of the In the Book of Pleasure, Spera introduces us to some new ideas. Central to these is still the Kia. But he introduces something called the new sexuality. Now, he defines this as the ancestral sex principle. He says, time has not changed it, hence I call it new. He also introduces something called the neither neither I. I believe this is drawn from the neti neti, uh, which he got from the Upanishad. Not this, not this. And I think uh, the best way to consider this is a sense of negated self. And he also introduced something called self-love. Now, Phil Bacon's biography dismisses this as a sort of narcissism. I think that's quite a shallow reading, actually, as I hope to show you in a moment. But relevant to this particular conference is Spare's introduction to the subconsciousness. Now, Spare was, throughout his entire life, was extremely quick to draw upon new things and to draw them into his work and to incorporate it and to make it relevant. Uh, that's a very sorcerous attitude. You, know, you use what's available, you make it work for you. But he says something very interesting about the subconscious. Know the subconscious to be an epitome of all experience and wisdom, past incarnations as men, animals, vegetable life, etc., etc. The last is the almighty simplicity. Mm. He then also says, if we succeed in waking them, we shall gain their properties and our accomplishment will correspond. Now, as, the, uh, as this develops, you'll see where he's going with this. But uh, the, the Book of Pleasure was uh, not a success. He thought it might go to a second, third edition. He thought uh, it would be launching him on the world stage, etc., etc. It was just simply too dense and complicated for most people. But also, the following year after its publication, it was published in 1913, the First World War started. And Spare discovered that uh, his grotesque style was being trumped by the grotesque war that was happening. And suddenly, that uh, you know, he was conscripted to the RAMC. He served very briefly as a war artist in a somewhat disheveled way. Um, the war was an enormous, um, da enormously damaging experience for him. He, he lost his wife, um, uh, the marriage dissolved. Um, she sold his collection of books and tribal art while he was serving. Uh, and he emerges from the war with absolutely nothing, really. Uh, he ended up staying in a friend, uh, friend's uh, apartment just near the British Museum. Now you would think, emerging from this very difficult experience, where he's living in very reduced circumstances, the very first thing he would do is say, okay, I've got to get back on my feet, I've got to go back to employment, I've got to, you know, no. He returns to the idea he had in 1905, the focus of life. And he writes to a friend, Frederick Carter, and he says, I want to do a book, would you like to be involved? And Frederick Carter did get involved, he actually edited the book, and he produced what is probably the most professionally produced book of Spare's entire career. So the focus of life, um, it has this strange dreamlike narrative, and it's full of these extraordinary delicate pencil drawings. But it's a very difficult book to read, simply because it's so obscure. 
But uh, quite recently, there was an extraordinarily, well, it's very rare in my life, I've been involved with Spurs work for 30 years, that the hair on the back of my neck stands on end. But when I saw this photo for the first time, that's exactly what happened. Uh, it's the sort of thing you see and you think, I never thought I would see anything like this. The folio of original preparatory drawings to the focus of life was discovered. And since the early 1930s, it had been, if you can believe it, in the collection of the novelist E.M. Forster. Now, it's my sentiment that Spare knew Forster and had sold it to him direct because the folio contains things which could not be sold on an open market. <clears throat> this is the cover of the folio. And I just draw your attention to that round circular being there for a moment. <clears throat> Here Spare says, AOS renouncing the past sexuality. It's a very clear statement of intent. You see, the focus of life, the mutterings, AOS. Now, I think AOS, a double A, AOS, is actually Ammon AOS. And Spare has hidden the word Ammon, so he's truncated it. <clears throat> Note again that strange round circular being, and this time in this vast, almost seems like a cosmic womb. Now this preparatory folio is full of the most extraordinary, exquisite drawings, but there is one particular suite of drawings which I think is essential to understanding Spare's entire ontology. This I believe to be a self-portrait. Again, a self The suite of three drawings self portrait, prior, just before, and after some event. Now, in the Focus of Life, there is one passage which is buried in the book. And in its verse, it says, I assert the self love to be a most secret ritual by blasphemous ideographs, and he who calls, pronouncing the word fearlessly, the entire creation of a woman shall rush into him. Why? What is he seeking to do here? In the Book of Pleasure, there is a piece of text that says, a microbe has the power to destroy the world, and certainly would if it took an interest in us. If you were to dismember its limb, the mutilated part would regrow, etc. So by evoking and becoming obsessed or illuminated by these existences, we gain their magical properties, or the knowledge of their attainment. Now in that preparatory folio there is a drawing 
AOS of destroying the cosmos. And the actual frontispiece to the published book, The Focus of Life, is this. Now I believe here, what does he spare with the logos, the book, over his genitals? He said with, uh, to his great friend Frank Letchford that when he posed for this photograph and took a picture of himself, the flash was so intense it singed his genital hair. <laughs> <coughs> I think this is referencing Durham, actually, the resurrection of Christ. The drawing is called The New Dawn. And again, we see the woman behind him, we see this bell lifting, we see this great sort of uh, menagerie of animal forms and life, etc., etc. And also, there is an alchemical element, element to this, too. I think what we're looking at here is a sort of an ontological ground zero. We're looking at uh, a gender reboot. I think what he's hoping to do is by assimilating and becoming this androgynous being, he is taking himself closer and closer to the memory of the first self, the almighty simplicity. It is an extraordinary notion that everyone in this room shares one thing, is that there is an unbroken chain of life between us and the very first cell that existed on this earth. Spare was hoping that if he could trace those steps to go back and to assimilate the properties of that single cell, that all its accomplishments, the entire life on earth, all the energy that's gone into informing that would be his to command. And I believe what he hoped to do was express that through his art, to make art that would change the world, would be creating a completely new culture. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a presentation by Robert Ansel on the androgyny of Austin Osman Spare. For more, grab the collected papers from this conference in the Fenris Wolf, Volume 9, available from Chapart. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can also visit the conference website, psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. For more of Robert Ansel's work, he runs the publishing company Fulger. That's F-U-L-G-U-R dot C-O dot U-K. Visit Fulger. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and poetry from Chapart Books 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P A T R E O N.com forward slash 
V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Sexuality is not a realm by either the unconscious 
sexuality. 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 Sexuality